Welcome to Small Town Big Stories, a program where we dive deep into the lives and experiences of our incredible residents. Get ready to be inspired, entertained, and connected as we uncover the hidden gems that make this town shine. I am your host, Catherine Eves, and together, let's celebrate the stories that bring us closer. Welcome to Sam Davis. How are you doing today, Sam? I'm doing just fine. Well, we... I, I feel even better since I got here. <laughs> good, good. Well, we are we are honored to have you on the show today. So, tell us a little bit about yourself. You weren't born in Alpine. You were raised somewhere else. Give us a little bit of background. We'd like to know a little bit more about you. No, I was I was born in Dillon, Montana, little town in southwestern Montana, about sixty miles south of Butte. And um, yeah, I I was born there in. in January 29, 1933, you know, toward the end of the Great Depression, and uh, we had a big family. Uh, my dad had come from Missouri originally. I had four older brothers and one sister. There were six of us. My sister, of course, was the oldest, and I was the youngest, so I was the baby of the family. Okay. And uh, they're all gone now. You know, I, I guess I become the patriarch of that branch of the family tree. I can remember when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. I learned that you, one very important thing in life, you've got to forgive the people that do bad things in this world, but that doesn't mean you have to like them. Right. Anyway, I, I remember a lot of those things, and I went to high, junior high, high, or kindergarten, junior high, high school, and into you know, those, those years before I went to the University Hall in Dillon, Montana. Okay. All right. So you said you were born January 29th, yeah. 1933. Yeah. By my reckoning, that, that figures out that make, makes me about 91 and a half. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so you'll have another birthday coming up in January, and then you'll be 92. Yeah. You know, I don't look forward to looking forward to my, my, my birthday any longer because, you know, it comes and goes. Every year it just gets, a, gets me a little older. Right. Oh, I figure I've got about five years left. Oh, maybe more. I don't know. Maybe more. We never yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, I've got to stay alive. The Cowboys win the um, the entire Pecos League. Right. And, uh, it might be a while. So you went to college at, at the University of Montana. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. I started in in 1949, graduated in 1954, went into the Air Force. And was in the Air Force for three years. That was my requirement as a graduate in ROTC. Ah, okay. So I went in as a second lieutenant. They, of course, wanted me to stay and fly airplanes. That's what I went in for. I didn't have any trouble doing that. That's just silly. Fun. What I didn't understand was that you do, do a lot of things in the Air Force. I thought you went in to get from one place to the other fast. And they said, no. That isn't it. You go in there to practice what to do in case of emergencies. Oh, okay. So uh, that's what I learned very quickly. And I learned then that I was not going to stay in and be a jet pilot. Okay. And they wanted me to stay and be a jet pilot. I said, no, I'm not going to stay because I'd, I've got to get out and go back and get my master's degree right. in music and playing the trumpet. So they said, well, commanding general in that board meeting where they told me all this that I was what was going to happen to me, they said, well, you know, we're, we're probably going to give you the worst assignment in the Air Force, Thule Air Force Base or Alaska or somewhere up in the Arctic. 
And I said, hey, that's the way it is. Do what you have to do. So that was but their I, punishment, I knew, huh? I knew very well that I was not going to allow the, the U- U.S. Air Force to spend $125,000, $150,000 on me and expect me to fly jets. I always thought flying jets was great, but it wasn't going to be for me. They said, okay, well, you can expect to uh, tough times in the Air Force then because we're going to send you to the worst assignment we can find. So I left that board meeting down the hall, and, and a, a captain stopped me. Still don't know his name, never did. But he said, you're Davis, aren't you? Yeah, that's me. He said, um, I understand that you're leaving the Air Force to go back to music school. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to get my master's degree in trumpet. And he said, well, you know, I, I just might be able to help you. But he said he was a singer for the Tex Beneke Band. Oh, wow. And so he had had quite an experience himself. He waited for my orders, and pretty soon they came through and turned out that the singer probably did help me because I ended up going to St. Louis, Missouri to um, a nine-week personnel school. That was fine. I was, I'd rather be there, I think, than Thule Air Force Base. <laughs> so anyway, that, that's how it went. Got to know the base pretty well. I, I was at, at that time, I was at Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. Yeah, and that's a command base for the, that section of the Air Force. And I got to know how to get around in, in that base, and I went down to the base band and talked to the uh, band director. He was chief warrant officer. And his name was Benny Maniscalco. Benny was a good guy. He and I got to know each other very well. In fact, he was the first non-commissioned officer that was ever commissioned as a captain in the United States Air Force. Benny and I got along very well and meet and talk with him and meet some of the guys and, and enjoy talking with them. In fact, I think I one time took my trumpet down there and, and practiced, showed some of them how to play the trumpet well. They were pretty <laughs> good. They didn't need me. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, a couple got my orders. There I was in Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. And nine weeks, nine and a half weeks into that course, I got a directed duty assignment from Washington, D.C. to go down and be the assistant band director at the 3310th Air Force Band. Oh, that's cool. So that, that's where I was. That, that gave me a lot of experience, more experience. I learned more there than the entire undergraduate degree program. That was invaluable, invaluable. I, I was with the band for a year, and then they literally ran out of officers. So I went to uh, the special services section and became the special services officer. And that's where I, I really learned what this whole business of running an Air Force is all about. It, it isn't the officers like I thought that run the Air Force. It's the non-commissioned officers And that's the tech sergeants, the master sergeants. And if you get in good with with them, they'll take care of everything in the office. All you have to do is come in in the morning and leave at night. And they'll take care of everything during the day. (laughs) That's good. At one point, I was the officer in charge of two base libraries, three service clubs, a hobby shop, two gymnasiums, a golf course, and um, probably some more in there. So the worst part of that job was, I swear that there wasn't two nights out of the the week that I wasn't called to go down and lock up one of those facilities. Oh, my goodness. So you were in charge of all of those at the same time? Yeah. <laughs> like I say, I didn't worry about it because the non-cause took, took care of it. Hey, I got along great. <laughs> that time went fast. In fact, 
it went so fast that I, I needed to get out just about a month early to go back to music school. Right. Because I, I would have gotten out in August, but they, they let me out. I guess somebody helped me there, too. They let me out a month early to go back to New York City and do, do my master's work at the University uh, at Manhattan School of Music. Oh, that's neat. That, that was well and good. I got my master's degree that in, in a year. Didn't know quite what I was going to do. I had my choice of taking some jobs that were offered me. I guess I was offered the chairmanship of University of Alaska. I had a, a possibility for an assistantship at the University of Montana to work on my doctor's degree. And I thought, hey, now's the time I should probably be in school, maybe go to Alaska later on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I went back to the University of Montana and started working on my doctor's degree. And th that took, let's see, I got there in 1958, and I didn't graduate with my doctor's degree until 1968. So okay. it takes a while. Yeah, it does. In it does. the meantime, I had gone on, stayed a year and a half, two years, I guess, at the University of Montana with an assistantship. I figured it was time for me to go out and get a job. So a little tough to live with a family, raise a family. I'll tell you about that later. <laughs> okay. So I left there, and I went first to Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. I went there for just one year because I, I was to take the place, the real band director there, who was off getting his doctor's degree. Oh. So I was there for a year, and then it turned out that he needed to stay on for another year or so to get his doctorate. That didn't surprise me a whole lot. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I said, uh, well, well, I can't stay. I'd, uh, they said, well, we'd like to have you stay another year. I said, well, hey, I've already started looking at other jobs, and, and uh, I've gotten an offer to go to the University of British Columbia in oh. Vancouver, Canada. Now that's good. So I, I did go to Canada, and I was up there for four years. I had had a son when I left the Air Force, and by now he was like four or five years old. And then wh while I was at, at Whitworth College, we had a, a baby girl. That, that was my daughter, Alicia. I'll tell you more about her later, but she was a former announcer at KDVM oh. when she was in high school. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, All right, well, we're about to take yeah, a break, and when we come back, I want to hear a little bit about you were also thinking that you might become a baseball player, and then uh, you came to Alpine, what was it, 1972? 1975. 1975. So we'll, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that when we okay. come back. Okay, so we're going to take a short break now, guys, and we'll be right back. Okay, welcome back, everyone. We're here with Sam Davis. So, Sam, when you were growing up, you thought that you might become a professional baseball player? Yeah, that was my plan. I, I had been scouted, and so I was going to go off and play with a probably a minor league team. The left-handed scout scouted me. He was going to call me, and uh, again, that's a long story, but uh, I'm still waiting for his call. <laughs> and I've, I've learned a lot of things about baseball. I've learned that the baseball players now are so much superior th than they were back when I was in, in college because they've had so much better weight training. And in fact, all sports, they're, they're just so much better trained. Anyway, I, I did play some, I was pretty good, but I, not quite as good as I thought I was. Right. And so I, that's why I've never heard back from Kess Riegler. Okay. He was the one-armed baseball player that, that scouted me. Oh, wow. So, I did play college ball. I played basketball and, and baseball. 
in college, but I never excelled there. There were a lot of good baseball players at the University of Montana. I kind of left the playing, but I never did lose my love for the game. That's why I continue to, to work out the, the Cowboys games. I star all the rallies. I haven't missed probably more than, oh, let's see, oh, I don't know, maybe eight or ten games. That's amazing. In, in since uh, 2009. Wow. wow. Did, did I tell you about the, the, the guy from Florida that has a son that plays with the Cowboys? No, you oh, didn't. Well, his son is Garcia, Martin Garcia. Okay. And he's one of the better ball players with the Cowboys. I shouldn't say that. They're all pretty good. <laughs> They're getting better. <laughs> they right. just swept three with uh, Santa Fe. Oh, Wiggles. wow. That's good. Yeah. Anyway, the, the father of Manny Gar- Garcia uh, came up to me. I didn't know who he was. He says, hey, you're, you're Sam Davis, aren't you? I said, yeah, that's me. He said, I've watched you... Uh, on, on some of the Cowboys games because, you know, these games are streamed. Right. And I, I saw you in, in Florida. Yeah, and there were, you were down in the, in the front row box seat, uh, clapping your hands, hands, starting the rally. And I said, yeah, I had sometimes had the feeling that, that maybe I was doing some good. It was actually working. He said, you bet it works. You bet, you bet. Well, take us back to 1975. How did you come to be an Alpine? Well, I had been to Whitworth College, went on to University of British Columbia, where I incidentally started the, the first ever of the uh, University of British Columbia's music school concert band. So I was the first director of that band. That We were just getting started. There were actually two departments of music. There was a department of music education, and then there was a department of music for professionals, and so I was hired in concert band director at uh, the music school department of music. Hey, that was great. Uh, met some fine people there. Let's see, I was the second group of three that got to Vancouver. The first group had come from um, University of N- North Carolina, which had some great teachers, and, and they were hired to go and start that program at the University of British Columbia. And so the, the next year, three more of us were there. I met these guys, and they were fantastic musicians, uh-huh. all f- other five of them. <laughs> and by that time, I, I still hadn't received my doctor's degree. Right. Didn't, that didn't come until 1968 when I finished that, finished my dissertation. There I was, University of British Columbia. From there, I went back to my hometown. There was a little college there, there named Western Montana College. Okay. So I taught there for 10 years. And then that, that t- took me up to 1974, okay. 75. I figured it was time for me to leave there because I probably fig- I figured one more chance to raise my pay by getting a, a better job. Right. And so I, I looked in, on the Internet to see what I could find, and I found a, a little school in southwestern Texas, not unlike Dillon, Montana. Uh-huh. Yeah, Alpine's very similar. Okay. And they were looking for a band director. And so I, I called them, and let's see, the executive officer, the, or the vice president for affairs was, um, can't remember his name. Anyway, he said, what kind of a job are you looking for? I said, I'm looking for a, a job, probably be the last one that I'll take. I figured I can, I can get more pay if I go to Texas. They were always paying more in Texas than they were in Montana. <laughs> so they said, well, we tried. Uh-huh. So. My last salary in Western Montana College was 
like uh, 14, 15,000 a year. Uh, I checked this job in at Saul Ross, and that job paid 18. Oh, okay. Yeah, so by then I had my doctorate, of course. Got a call from Earl Elam. Earl, oh. some of the, the people that are listening might remember Earl Elam. Okay. And he said, Dr. Davis, he said, w- would you come here if you weren't the de- department chair of music? I said, no, I don't think so. He said, well, okay, we'd like to offer you the position of chairman of the music department. Oh, good. (laughs) So I said, okay, that's fine. I mentioned the offer was for 18,000. So that was a nice raise, 3,000 bucks. Sure. Got here, and as it turned out, they were just in the transition and getting some extra pay for, for college faculty members. And by the time I finally settled down in Alpine, in 1975, the pay, my pay had been up to 20000 Oh, that was really good. That's <laughs> did, a nice increase. I didn't mind that at all. Right, right. <laughs> so how many years were you at Sewell Ross? Well, I started in 75, and I here's my 20-year my pin. I've been retired since 95, so I guess that made me 25, didn't mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. Oh, well. <laughs> 1975 to 1995? Yeah, 75 to to 95. Okay, yeah, so 20, 20 years. Yeah. That's a good long time. Well, Do, that may, that means that I've been retired a little longer than I worked at Saul Ross. <laughs> time goes quickly. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, so, you've, all, you, you, you've all found out about that, too. That You know, you get older. Things happen as you get older. Sometimes you forget. I guess I'm the only person in the world that can forget what I'm doing while I'm doing it. <laughs> I don't know. There's probably plenty of us out there that do that, Sam. So do you have a favorite memory or student or anything while you were teaching at school? Oh, hey, I had some good students. Tell us about that. Well, I I, I remember such things as Steve Binnick. Steve Binnick, fantastic musician, very very possibly the smartest kid graduate out of Sol Ross ever. So Steve, wherever you are, you always have my gratitude for being one of my students. He said, Dr. Davis, one time he said, I was gratified to have you as a teacher. I learned pretty soon after that that S- Steve was a lot smarter than I am. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, then let's see. I also remember a, a faculty member named um, Errol Gay, E-R-R-O-L G-A-Y. Okay. Errol had been a trombone player in my University of, at Vancouver, uh-huh. And so he was in my band up there, and it turned out then that he became conductor of a, an opera orchestra. They, of all things, had come to Dilla, Montana while I was teaching there, and Errol did a opera called La Boheme. Oh, okay. And La Boheme was a great opera. It happened to be the, the one that I, the first opera that I ever played in at the University of Montana. His wife, he had met, married a Texas girl. Okay. And Ann something other. Uh-huh. And Ann's father had been a pennies manager in Texas. Oh, okay. And so uh, they, they kind of wanted to get to Texas, and we had the job opening, so we hired Errol Gay. And Errol was one of the finest musicians. He and, he and Steve Bennett are rated very highly in my book. And Errol could play the piano, he could play the trombone, he could play the saxophone. I guess he could play hooky. Yeah, multi-talented. Yeah. Yeah. So Errol came, and and while Errol was here, we did two full-fledged operas at Sol Ross. Okay. And we staged them both at the old Alpine High School 
auditorium. Oh, that would have been something to see. Put together a great, great opera. The first opera we had here that was um, Madame Butterfly, and his wife sang the leading role. Oh, wow! And we had we had other singers that came from uh, San Francisco and and St. Louis, uh, Dallas, and, and played in this opera. So that, that opera went over great. We had big crowds, and everybody enjoyed it. That's when the Big Ben Chamber Orchestra was started. Okay. That's no longer in existence. Right. Yeah, we had, we had a great time. Then later on, we, we did a second. After Errol and his wife had left Saul Ross, they managed to get some grant money to give to Saul Ross, and they came back, I guess it was in 1981, and we did um, Rigoletto oh. you know, in a Western style. Mm-hmm. My wife's sister came in and played one of the leading roles. Her name was Marjorie Crockett. That was the maiden name. But by that time, she was married, and uh, she had married a German in San Francisco. He ran a shipping company. They, they took... Uh, cargoes all around the world from South America to Canada and, and into Europe. He could speak four languages oh, wow. flu- fluently. Anyway, his name was Dieter. So Dieter and Marjorie came for the, the uh, Rigoletto and that was another big success. And Errol had come back. He was then teaching uh, at an, another school. He came back and, and directed that opera. That brings back a lot of memories. Oh, I bet it does. <laughs> I bet it does. So you um, spend a lot of time watching the 06 Cowboys. Tell us about your relationship with the Cowboys. Well, like I, I've told you, I guess I'm the one that keeps the Cowboys rallies going. Right. You, it, you got it, to throw out the first pitch, right? Yeah. I, a couple of I, times, more? The last time I did that, I did it several times. Uh-huh. The last time I did that was about three years ago. Okay. I went out on the field. I, I thought, well... Before I throw out the first pitch, I'll, maybe I'll do down and do a few push-ups. And I thought, <laughs> no, I better not do that. That'll take too much time. <laughs> anyway, so I didn't get down on my hands and knees and do push-ups and challenge the baseball teams to do that. I said, uh, I better throw out the first ball. So I told them, okay, now be, be careful, catcher, because I'm going to throw you my, my double-knuckle fastball. <laughs> double-knuckle fastball? <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty good. So what I did was I wound up like a pitcher does and started to throw it. But in the meantime, I had reached over and put the ball on my left hand. Uh-huh. And so I threw the ball with my left hand to the catcher and then whipped around like this. I said, try to hit that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, there was no batter there. Right, right. Anyway, that, that was my double-knuckle fa- fastball. I, I should have thrown my double-knuckle fa- fastball spitball. That would have been hit too. Yeah, yeah, that would Anyway, then I got back in the stands and and I, I still enjoy the games and I still go to all the games. And, and you got to sing the national anthem? Was it for one of the 06 yeah, Cowboys? Had, uh, th- they invited me to sing the national anthem. Yeah, but I've got a guy sitting here next to me and he's also a singer. He, in fact, he came uh, to Alpine from the Houston Symphony Orchestra oh. and he, he plays clarinet and his name is Don Slocum. Don and Carol Slocum. Carol was the uh, first flautist with the Houston Symphony. The two of them were in that orchestra. They retired in Alpine. Wow. And, and so Don was sitting in the stands that day that I was to sing it. And uh, I said, I won't come and sing it unless I can, I can have my friend Don. They said, okay. So Don and I went up. And seemed to me maybe we had somebody else that came in and sang bass. 
and he sang a lead and I sang tenor, and we sang the Star Spangled Banner. You know, we sang it like, like it was supposed to be. Right. Stay, no wobbling around. <laughs> so I, we sang the Star Spangled Banner. Incidentally, Don Slocum would always stand during the seventh inning stretch and sing, take me out to the ball game. Only Don would sing it differently. Uh-huh. He would sing it to the, the, the melody going forward, but he would sing it with the words going backward. Oh. And I was never wow. able to copy that. <laughs> I don't think I could do that either. Yeah. Well, Sam, it has been such a pleasure having you in here today. So thank you for coming and sharing your stories. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Small Town Big Stories. Small Town Big Stories has been brought to you by BBT, a local company you can count on. If there is a local resident of the Big Bend area that you would like for us to interview, drop me an email at ceves2017 at gmail.com. Over the next several months, we will look forward to sharing the stories of our neighbors firsthand while getting to know them just a little bit better. Thank you again for listening, and we hey, will be great. back in Thank two you, weeks. Thank you, Catherine. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Sam. Okay. Thank you. <laughs>